while you are getting your Bibles out and turning in the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, the 25th chapter, I do need to make you aware of a threat that I received yesterday. This is it. Watch out tomorrow. You should be as excited about church as about the Super Bowl. So when your pastor makes a point this Sunday, pour Gatorade over his head. (laughs) Now, I agree wholeheartedly that there should be some response to the truth of God's word. So I'm willing to negotiate with you this morning. Instead of Gatorade, if you hear something true, how about saying something like, I don't know, amen. Presbyterians, dignified, stoic in worship. (laughs) We have forgotten our Presbyterian heritage, particularly the Scottish branch of our brothers and sisters. They were much more interactive during the preaching of God's word. And when the word of God was being preached and the preacher made a good point, the congregation would respond, or at least part of them, say on, say on, keep speaking, keep telling of the glory and the goodness and the grace of God. So I'll attempt to be faithful, to say what's true according to God's word, and you keep listening for that truth and feel free to respond when you hear that truth. After all, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? Scripture says the trees of the field clap their hands and shout for joy. God's truth calls for a response for us. It's not to just lie there. We respond to the truth of the Word of God and the glory of God that it reveals to us. I hope we'll do that this morning as we come to God's Word. So I'm going to ask you to stand. As we hear read together the word of the living God from Deuteronomy chapter 25, beginning in verse 17, reading through the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you and the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, once again, we receive your truth. We hold it in our hands. We hear it read. We know it comes from you. We thank you for it, for preserving it for us for teaching us through it, letting us know how it is we are to live our lives, what we are to believe, the truth that we are to know and believe about you. So we call on you once again, Spirit of God, to be the teacher here this morning. Take what is true, empower it, and use it to change us for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. May be seated. Well, once again this week, we encounter commands that are a little unsettling to us. Nothing like last week, thank the Lord. 
But we read commands that appear to us to be vengeful and spiteful and unforgiving. We read commands that might irritate you just a little bit and conceivably make you think, when are we going to be finished with Deuteronomy? Why can't we get out of the Old Testament? Why can't we move on to the New Testament and talk about Jesus who said, come unto me all who are weary, I will give you rest. The Jesus who called the little children to him and blessed them. Well, rushing off or rushing on to the New Testament is not going to change the fact that our God is the same unchanging God. As our own confession of faith reminds us, in question four of the shorter catechism, God is infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his being. Now that's where you say, say on. God is infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his being. So we need to listen to those unsettling feelings that we experience, feelings of struggle or confusion or frustration and doubt. What are they teaching us? Our feelings, what are they teaching us about what we believe it means to really know God? Do we believe that knowing God through his word is Easy, effortless, cursory. See, passages like the one before us this morning provide us with opportunities to learn beyond their specific content. Because these verses require us to think about the God whose thoughts are above our thoughts, whose ways are higher than our ways. And sometimes we have to wrestle with what we hear from God. Sometimes we have to wrestle with what we see of the ways of God. So if your relationship with God through faith in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, if it's going to be more than just an add-on to your life, if it's going to be more than just an incidental, if it's going to rise to be more than just one thing among many equally compelling things, if it's going to be that, this is what you and I have to do. We have to wrestle with the truth until we own it. And it takes effort on our part. But here is some really good news. It's a promise from Jesus. He promises his disciples, when the spirit of truth comes, the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth. And the Spirit will take what is mine, says Jesus, and make it known to you. Now that's Jesus' promise to us as we seek to get at the truth. So we begin to wrestle with the verses before us this morning, but before we do that, we also have to do something else, and that is to posit some truth. Truth that serves as our foundation. Truth that we accept as unchanging. Here's an example of one of those truths. Exodus chapter 34. You've heard it often because I've read it often. But here is a self-proclamation made by God. God himself speaking about who he is. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Now, by faith, we accept this as true. 
And we make everything else we read fit into the God that's described in these verses. Now, we do this in life all the time. We accept some things as true, and those truths become the foundation upon which we build. For instance, we accept the law of gravity as a reality in our lives. We believe in gravity. So, when we see something floating through the air, or a witch flying on a broom, we don't assume, oh, hmm, the law of gravity must be incorrect. We don't require the law of gravity to prove itself over and over again. No, we assume the law of gravity is true, and we simply start looking for other explanations for what we see for what appears to be defying gravity. Perhaps that witch is suspended with ropes and pulleys. So it is with God, not that he's suspended with ropes and pulleys. But his character cannot constantly be called into question. And his character cannot be maligned because we see or read something that we don't readily understand. God cannot constantly be put on the stand and told, prove yourself to be innocent. Prove that you are not harsh. Prove that you are not an angry God. No, God has already proven himself over and over and over again. And so when we see something or read something that appears to defy these truths about God, then we have to look at what we read or see more closely. We've got to do the hard work of wrestling with what we hear or experience to see how it fits with the character of our unchanging God that we must accept by faith. And so we come to these verses this morning and we wrestle with them and see how they fit into what we know to be true about God. And the verses that I've just read recount a terrible atrocity that happened to God's people. They had just escaped from Egypt. 400 years they've been enslaved there. They're not a well-armed army. They're not a militia. They're just exactly that. Slaves who have been set free after 400 years. And they're making their way through the desert to the promised land that they have not seen yet, but they know that it exists somewhere out there. So making their way through the desert is not putting them in a particularly good mood. They don't really have what they need. So what do they do? They grumble and they complain. But God has no intention of letting his people perish in the desert. So God gives them what they need. He provides quail and he provides manna from heaven when they have nothing to drink in the desert. There's no water. God simply tells Moses, take your staff, strike the rock and water will gush from it. And that's exactly what happened. Now, all this to say that God's people at this point are not at the top of their game, physically speaking. They are reduced to complete trust in God, even for the basics of life, which really is the apex of spiritual achievement, the best place that we can possibly be. But physically speaking, to a watching world, they are not at their strongest. And the Amalekites are doing just that. They're watching God's people as they make their way through the desert. 
And they chose this moment of weakness to attack God's people. But that's not the worst thing they did. Because they don't attack the strongest of the weak. They attack the weakest of the weak. Look in verse 18. We just read it. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. Who would be lagging behind? The weak? The sick? The old? Perhaps large families with young children who had to be carried or could only walk slowly? Because of that, they were separated from the rest of the group. They were less able to defend themselves. And those are the very people that the Amalekites sought to kill and plunder. They were cowardly. They were despicable. Humanly speaking, it would require very little encouragement to remember this egregious wrong. It would require little encouragement to seek revenge on these people. But we're not speaking of humans here. We're speaking about God commanding such things. And God doesn't want them to miss the point. And so he bookends the point in these verses. Beginning of verse 17, remember. The very end of verse 19, do not forget, exclamation point. And in between, just to make sure they don't miss the point, God says to them, blot out their memory. Blot out the memory of the Amalekites from the earth. So what do we do with these verses that seem to be vengeful and command holding a grudge? How do we reconcile these verses with verses like Psalm 103? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah 43, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions For my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So, does God forget or does God remember? How do we reconcile this with Jesus' words? Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Or with Jesus' response to Peter's question Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Seven times? That's a lot. Jesus says, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Which is it? Forgive or remember? Is God the same unchanging God or is he inconsistent? Does he have a double standard for himself and one for us as well? Well, let's look at the rest of the story of the attack of the Amalekites. God intervened on behalf of his people at the time of the attack. And it's one of my favorite stories in Scripture. Because Moses is up on a hill. And he's watching, looking down at the battle that's going on below. And as long as Moses' hands are in the air, the people of God are winning the battle. But when Moses' arms begin to fall, God's people begin to lose and the Amalekites begin to win. And so Aaron and Hur, when Moses gets weary, they find a stone and they bring the stone for Moses to set on. And then one of them, one on each side, Hur on one side, Aaron on the other, they hold up Moses' arms in the air 
until the setting of the sun so that God's people were victorious in battle. Now that's a sermon in and of itself. And I'm going to preach it. But not today, not today. So the battle was won. And in that moment when the battle was won, God said this, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it. Because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So when we come to the passage that we have before us this morning, do we see God being vengeful? No. We see God being true to his word. The judgments of the Lord are sure and unfailing. The judgments of the Lord are sure and unfailing. And we must trust the judgments of the Lord. This passage gives us a little more information on why the judgment of God is so severe. Look at the end of verse 18. It says that they, the Amalekites, had no fear of God. There was no fear in them. No reverence given to God. No honor given to Him as God. They dismissed Him as God. And when they dismissed Him as God... God passed judgment. That's part of God's character as well. Scripture tells us that God is the judge, that he judges his people with righteousness. Jesus himself says, for, I, for judgment I came into this world. And Acts chapter 17 says that God is fixed today on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So we know this to be true about God. He's judge. He will certainly judge. He's already passed judge on the Amalekites, and he records those judgments. Now I want to read you another passage. This one is from Revelation chapter 20. This is what John saw in the vision the Lord gave him. Then I saw a great white throne... And him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. Now the question is, when does God record entries into these books? When did God record your name in the book of life? Did God write it there, your name, in the book of life with indelible ink when you placed your faith in Christ? Or is God waiting to see how it might end up with you? Might God need to erase your name because he misjudged? No, of course not. Hebrews chapter 7, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. That's why your name is written in the book of life. Because Jesus 
is powerful to save you. Shall I say on? Because Jesus is powerful to keep you. Because Jesus always lives to intercede for you. And so by faith, you, by faith, you believe in the power of Jesus. The power is not in the strength of your faith. The saving power, keeping power, the desire to save, the desire to keep, belong to Christ. And that is why your name will never be erased. And that is the judgment of God. We also need to ask, when does God get to carry out his judgments? That's up to him. We can't tell God what to do, when to pass his judgment and carry it out. We can't require that God give more time or more opportunity. We can't require it of him. It's not our place. God's judgments are for the good of his people. And we must trust in them. We know the rest of the story with the Amalekites. God's people did not obey God. He said, remember, do not forget. They forgot. When they got to the promised land, they did not blot out the memory of the Amalekites. They didn't do as God commanded. And the Amalekites were a plague upon God's people. Constant attacks. From the time they entered the promised land through the time of the judges, they played God's people. Judges chapter 3 says that Eglon, the, the king of Moab, he gathered himself to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and they went and defeated Israel. And the people of Israel served him for 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Judges chapter 6. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying crops. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hordes coming with their livestock and tents were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels, too numerous to count. And they stayed until the land was stripped bare. Israel was reduced to starvation. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. We get to the time of the kings. Saul, the very first king. God says, now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. But Saul... Did not obey God in this. And so the Amalekites continue to plague God's people. Fast forward to the time of David, who is now king. David returns home from battle with his men. And what does he discover when he comes home? Well, he found that the Amalekites had raided his town. They had crushed his town and burned it to the ground. And they had carried off women and children and everyone else. And when David and his men saw the ruins... And realized what had happened to their families, they wept until they could weep no more. David's two wives were among the captured. All because God's people did not trust in the judgment of God. So we see now the heart of God in this command. It was to protect his people. 
And had they obeyed God, had they trusted God's judgment, they would have been spared many, many decades and centuries of death and destruction. Had God's people obeyed his judgment, the watching world would have known that the judgments of the Lord are sure and inescapable. And perhaps they would have bowed before the one and only true and living God instead of coming against him in battle. It's the loving heart of a father who seeks to protect his children and to protect his witness to the world that issues these commands. Now, God has the same heart toward you and toward me. And so the command that goes out to us this morning is similar to the one that went out to the people of Israel. Remember, he would say to us, do not forget the enemy that seeks to destroy you. Blot out from your life the enemy that attacks you when you are weak, when you are weary, when you are vulnerable and lagging behind. What is that enemy? Sin. It is a tireless, relentless plague on your life and mine. And we are to make no compromise with sin. Peter writes, For you've been born again through the living and enduring word of God. Therefore, rid yourselves. Same command. Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, kill it, blot it out. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all things such as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. See, we've got to trust God's judgments for us. We cannot compromise with sin any more than the Israelites could compromise with the Amalekites. God in His grace has preserved this record for us of the results of the lack of obedience in this. He's preserved for us the results of making our own judgments, saying, oh, it'll be okay. When God says, no, 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 it won't be okay. Blot it out. That's what God says. If we allow it to stay, this will be the result. You can't come into an amicable agreement with sin and agree to coexist in your life. It, 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 it won't work. If we fail to continually blot out the sin in our lives, it will tyrannize us. Sin will destroy us. But here's some good news. I want to end with the good news. The battle is not going to go on 
forever. One day, God's judgment will come in its fullness, and sin and death will be defeated, and it will plague us no longer. It will be blotted out of our lives. Its memory will be erased, and we will be with Jesus, and we will be safe. So, I will conclude by reading from Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look! God's home is now among His people. He will live with them, and they will be His people. God Himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look! I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down. For what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all of these blessings And I will be their God, and they will be my children. But, but, cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the judgment of God. But, new heaven, new earth. New Jerusalem, of which Jesus says, Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. How will you respond to that? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your truth. Thank you for your good and loving heart that we see in the passage this morning. That we perhaps thought portrayed you as harsh and cruel. When in reality, Lord, your desire is to protect your people. To protect our witness in this world so that we might make a difference here for Jesus' sake. Father, judgment is a reality. It doesn't make you harsh. It doesn't make you cruel. Lord, people have the opportunity to respond to your truth, to respond to the gospel. You've opened that way to everyone who will believe. The way is narrow. The way is only one. But that one way is open to all. Lord, for those who refuse that way, 
it's not cruelty on your part to carry out the judgment that you have said accompanies those who refuse to acknowledge you as God, who refuse to bow before you, who refuse to honor you, Lord Jesus. It's the perfect Son of God and the only Savior for sinners. So, Lord, we know and we see that your heart is good and that you seek to protect us. Lord, now empower us, we pray. Help us to remember. Help us to never forget what happens, Lord, when we try to compromise with the enemy. When we make the judgments and place our judgment over yours, saying, oh, it will be okay when it won't be. Lord, cause us to listen to your judgment about our lives and live in accordance to what you say. We commit ourselves to you, to the work of your Spirit. And Father, in these next few moments, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper, Continue to do your work in us. Spirit of God, continue to reveal the heart of the Father to us as we wait to come to this table and experience a demonstration of the great love that you have for us. Lord, we wait on you silently and ask you to continue the work of your truth in us.